Welcome back to Mindset in Motion, an Orbis podcast discussing the ideas, pathways, and innovation shaping the future of higher education. I'm your host, Bill Heinrich. Today, we're excited to be recording in partnership with Experiential Teaching and Learning in Higher Education, or ELTHI. ELTHI is a peer-reviewed journal by and for experiential learning scholar practitioners in higher education. Scholar practitioner is a key identity for Orbis Mindset, so this pairing makes a lot of sense for the readers of ELTHI and the listeners of Mindset in Motion. In this partnership, we'll be joined by contributors from ELTHI to discuss their current research and their relevance for EL practitioners. If you hear something you like and you want to learn more, we'll come back at the end of the show with contact information for the authors and a link to the original article. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Let me introduce today's featured author, Bob Hackey from Providence College. Welcome, Bob. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad you could join us. I was excited to read your article around fostering resilience and experiential learning courses. Tell us, where do we find you today? What's your role at Providence College? What are you up to? Well, I'm coming to you live from my office at Providence College. Uh, I've been a faculty here at PC since 1999. The genesis for this article is a course that I teach. Uh, it's a required course in our program, which is our internship course. We called it Felix Field Experience Seminar. And I've been teaching this since I joined the faculty in 1999. Great. And what is the name of the academic program you're a faculty of? I'm in the Department of Health Sciences here at Providence College. Okay. And Health Sciences covers? We have just created a brand new nursing school here at PC. And so we have folks who are training to be nurses. We have folks who are working on the non-clinical side of healthcare and health policy and management. And also folks who are preparing for other allied health professional careers as well. Okay. Good to know what context we're talking about, experiential learning and resilience. That helps a lot. So in reading your article, I found myself focusing on this one quote, and you quoted from Alex Jan in the New York Times. And I'm going to read it here. A growing cohort of young employees have never worked from an office. They graduated during the pandemic or landed jobs just as offices began to shut down. And many of them, especially Generation Z, imagine they may never work in an office as remote work becomes the default for many businesses. This really, you know, living through COVID, right? I'm coming to you from my basement in Hamilton, Ontario, my home office. So I guess I'm feeling this, but tell me more about your students and specifically, what's your working definition of resilience? Well, I think I, I come at it from a couple of different perspectives. I think traditionally in the literature, we've seen an emphasis on resilience as an individual trait, kind of the psychological capacity to adapt to stressful circumstances, bouncing back from adverse events, the tools and the strengths that help us to respond to disruption. And I think that's true. But I think increasingly, we're starting to look at resilience as something that it is a trait that can be developed. But as institutions, I think we have an opportunity to help our students really develop those skills. They don't just come neatly packaged. I think they, it's one of those things where you need to reflect, you need to assess, and you need to really work on developing things that are going to help you overcome the challenges we face. And how should we be thinking about resilience? Like you mentioned it as an individual trait. And then you're talking about it as an institutional, maybe imperative. Talk about that. How do we go? Absolutely. So I think it is an individual trait, but I think institutions have an important role to play here. So, for example, faculty members can, in our courses, use as essentially a core competency. We have lots of things we want our students to develop. We want them to develop writing and research skills and critical thinking skills. For me, helping students to develop resilience is an important element of my course. I've embedded it in the course. I do this through journaling. I do it through the selection of readings. I also try to include in every one of my syllabi a mental health statement that indicates to students that I'm really 
interested in engaging in a dialogue with them about where they're at and what challenges they face. Yeah, I always preface this by saying I'm in no way a counselor or a certified mental health professional. My job is to be a connector. I can try to help advocate and connect them with folks who can provide those services if needed. And I think, you know, one of the things that strikes me, Bill, as we look around, there's a growing body of literature that really underscores the challenges that our students are facing. We see it in high school, we see it in middle school, but those folks are coming to us in college. And there was a, a survey done by the Kaiser Family Foundation last October, and 90% of the public thinks that we have a mental health crisis in the U.S. today. About half of parents think that the pandemic has had a negative impact on their kids. And if we look at the cohort of young adults, ages 18 to 29, in this survey, about half of those young adults who are our students have described themselves as feeling essentially anxious or overwhelmed, often during their week. And one third of them describe their mental health or emotional well-being as only fair or poor. So since those are our students, I think we need to be aware of the things that our students who are arriving in our classrooms carry. Yeah. And how does anxiety and that overwhelm as example, how does that show up for your students? And you don't have to name individuals here, but of course. How, how, how do you see that in terms of performance? Like where does the rubber meet the road there? I think that's a fabulous question. First of all, I think the answer is that we see it in very different ways. So many students withdraw their anxiety, their stress leads them to misassignments, and then they become embarrassed and they, they won't reach out. And there are many cases, students that I've had in the past who've been very strong students, and then some personal challenges come along, some life struggle that they're dealing with, and they are really having a hard time regrouping and doing their best work. In other cases, I've had a lot of students who have really worked very closely with our campus mental health professionals, and they're working with lots of different issues. And I think for me, thinking about this, my teaching really kind of is divided into a pre-COVID and a post-COVID era. Before COVID, I didn't ask a lot of questions about my students' mental health, and I didn't really focus that much on it. I really attended to what I was doing in the classroom in terms of my content, and I focused on deadlines and assignments, and that was the bulk of my professional life. And then during COVID, it was a really eye-opening experience for me as we Zoomed into one another's homes and we talked to students online and did online advising. I really saw firsthand how many students were struggling and, and struggling in lots of different ways. Some were juggling family responsibilities, caring for younger siblings. Some were really struggling with the isolation and mental health issues loomed large for them. Others were working and trying to juggle work and school and relationships and family obligations. And it was really eye-opening for me to see the whole picture of the student experience. I would saw a compartmentalized picture of students' life before. And I think that COVID really opened my eyes to that. That's a familiar and therefore incredible story. Like, it feels so real. It feels so real. To hear you reflect on that now that some of us are back to work per se, back in your office at this point, maybe back in the classroom. We are back in the classroom. And I think things have returned to the, the semblance of normal. But I think what is eye-opening for me still is that those underlying stressors haven't really changed. And a lot of them aren't just pandemic related. They're life. I mean, it's national relationships. It's a death in the family. It's, it's difficult work challenges that you face. And I think that's one of the things for me as a faculty member, students bring all that with them into the classroom. And I think my goal is to try to give them some tools to manage that in addition to my course content, because if they can't manage those other things well, they're not going to do their best work. 
So for me, it's really trying to help them really put their best foot forward academically and personally. So you're making that connection for students to put their best foot forward through the tool of reflection. So tell me how you got there, because I love it. I'm an experiential learning scholar. You can go deep with this one if you want. What theories are you using? How did you come to this understanding? And how did you decide it would work in a health sciences program? Well, I would argue, I don't think it's really linked to just health sciences. I think it's something that can be broadly applicable. I don't actually have an extensive background in the academic psychological literature, et cetera. I'm a health policy person myself. Most of my work focuses on state and national healthcare reform. But during the pandemic, one of the things we used, we used our campus's learning management system extensively to try to reach students. And in the immediate aftermath of going virtual, I realized that we needed to kind of pivot to talk a little bit more, not just about our course content and themes, but how students were doing. Our students scattered all over the country. Mm -hmm. uh, we went home for spring break and we said, we'll see you in a week. And then that was it. And so one of the challenges was how to connect with people. And I, we used discussion forums on our learning management system as a great way to kind of get students to share how they were doing. And that really was eye-opening because students shared very, very personal things that said, hey, yeah, I'm staying up all night. I'm worried all the time. I'm stressed. The amount of anxiety and stress was palpable. And so then I started to look for tools and I used some interesting things. There's you know, a couple of activities I've used throughout this past couple of years. One is an activity that asks students to develop a resilience plan. So for example, we asked them to think back to a time that was challenging and to reflect on how they coped with that time. And then we asked them to think about, well, what's a challenge you're facing now? And what lessons can you apply from your previous attempt to deal with uncertainty or difficult yeah. circumstances to this current one? And it's, it's just a kind of helping students to conduct a mental inventory of their strengths and the things that have helped them cope in the past. Another activity asks them to reflect on a failure or something that did not go well. And so a door closed. Well, then now what door has opened as a result of those changes? And I actually found uh, some of those resources on uh, positivepsychology.com, which is a great resource. And I pull from a lot of different sources. I draw heavily upon articles in the Harvard Business Review on how do managers deal with some of these challenges. And I also uh, pull heavily on some wonderful columnists from the Wall Street Journal who write on kind of the work-life experience. Yeah. Okay. This is great. I'm just going to recap some of this. So you're pulling prompts from all over, from different popular sources and academic sources. And I think that's a really useful note for other experiential learning instructors. I just want to make that like find the prompts that make sense for you, for your field, because prompts are one of the hardest things to come up with. But then the questions help drive a certain kind of reflective behavior, a pathway from understanding to connection to application. And that's, I think, a really nice pattern that I just want to highlight there. So that's what great insight to share for other instructors out in the world. One thing I will say too, Bill, I learned by trial and error. One of the lessons of the resilience literature is that, you know, failure is a normal part of life. And as a faculty member, I think we often think we have to get it right, you know, in class. And I'm going to say that in this class, the course has evolved over the past several years. And sometimes I try something and I fall flat on my face and that's okay. That's an activity I won't use again. It's like riding a bicycle. You, you got to fall off a couple of times before yeah. you get the pedaling down. And I think for me, one of the things that I've found most helpful and the students have responded very well to, I drew upon an article that uh, Elizabeth Bernstein wrote for the Wall Street Journal a few years back about gratitude. And gratitude is one of those things that in the resilience literature, people talk a lot about. 
And basically at the beginning of the class, we set aside a, a very brief three to four minute time for journaling. And I asked students to reflect before we get going, which is a nice way to kind of get them engaged. Yeah. So we sit down and we basically say, okay, I want you to tell me something that you are proud of yourself for this week. And I want you to tell me something that you're grateful for. And I don't collect these. I just have the students write them. And I said, this is for you. This is not for me. I'm not going to grade it. How could I possibly tell you what you should and shouldn't be grateful for? And that's a, it's absurd. But what I want you to do is to be intentional. And even if you're having a lousy week, I want you to think about something that you are grateful for. And even if you've had some challenges academically or otherwise, I want you to think of what you're proud of yourself for. And I think that sets a tone for the class and it gets students talking. It gets people thinking about what they're good at, probably, at least exactly. to some degree, which is a big driver, you know, for developing competence is believing you're good at what you know, and that might Absolutely. be the assignment you're doing right now. It's also a matter of, it can influence addressing or inverting stereotype threat, which has a large basis, you know, in academic literature. So that's great. I mean, those are really interesting tools that I'm... So you mentioned some things, some, some trial and error, and you talked about what's working, and you talked about some things that didn't work. Like, what are the kinds of things that just didn't go the way you hoped? So I'll give people an article about resilience and say, well, okay, let's tear this article apart and tell me how it relates to your life. I find that with that more traditional academic approach hasn't always borne fruit. And I think one of the things is hard is that, well, first of all, let me back up a step because doing this kind of without any preparation is hard. I ask all of my students before they come to class to post a reflection about the day's readings. That's new for me. Normally, I used to conduct seminar and we would pull the readings apart together. And I didn't have them write something in advance. What I found is by having them write in advance, they start to get some of their thoughts down. And then I can review what they've posted and say, oh, gee, Bill, I noticed you said something really interesting in your posting. Would you like to expand on that? Yeah. It kickstarts the conversation. Before I started doing this, I had a lot of those moments where you know, I kick a question out, what I think is a really smart question. And then there's a uh, room full of crickets. You learn ways to try to, to jumpstart the conversation over time. It strikes me here that you're changing your whole practice here, and maybe not your whole practice, but you're constantly adapting as an instructor, as a teacher to different modalities, you know, remote learning versus in-person seminars, but also using the tools in front of you, your LMS, having some discussion forums that seemed useful. And so how do you encourage balance between focusing on students' needs here, you know, embodied in this idea of resilience and faculty expectations maybe your own expectations as they used to stand. And I don't know if that's quite attention or maybe that's just a, a spectrum. How do, you, how do you talk about that? Well, that's a great question. In my pre-COVID life, I was one of those folks who was somewhat of a stickler on deadlines and, and lots of things, you know, citation issues, et cetera. And I still am, but I view it more as a process now. I, I think I've learned a lot from colleagues during COVID as well. Uh, one of my good colleagues, uh, Debbie Levine, who won our campus teaching award a couple of years back, really emphasized in her speech when she was named as Teacher of the Year on campus, she emphasized what she called the pedagogy of kindness, which I think is something I've really internalized. Basically, when given the opportunity, I try to give the student the benefit of the doubt. And in some cases, I'm sure when a student asks for an extension or some special accommodation or something like that, which doesn't happen all that regularly, frankly, but when it does, my old self would have said, well, the deadline was X. It was assigned at the beginning of the semester that, yeah, it would be unfair for me to make an exception. But that's assuming that all students are at the same space. 
and in the same place. And what COVID taught me is that our students are in very different spaces. Some students are carrying a lot more baggage than other students are emotionally, you know, work requirements, et cetera. And I never knew before because I didn't ask. And I think that taught me something really important. So I keep high expectations of what they're going to do for me, but I want my students to know that if they need a little bit of space to be able to do their best work, I really want to see their best work. I want them to be able to succeed. And I think that's really a change for me. And I think for a lot of faculty around the country, we've moved into some uncharted territory. Uh, and if I could, just one thing, the course I teach is an internship seminar. And so like you, Bill, a lot of my students are working remotely in their internships. And a lot of them are going to start their jobs remotely. And one of the things that I think is very interesting now as we, as we try to mentor students, particularly in experiential learning, our placements always used to be in person, X hours per week. And this was, you know, you kind of logged hours and the supervisor would tell me you were there and that was how we did it. Now I've got most of my students in hybrid or remote settings. It's the exception that's in person. And uh, that was a huge adjustment for us. But frankly, as a program in the health sciences, we were routinely placed people in hospitals, nursing homes, and other settings. And during COVID, they were not accepting people in person. It wasn't it was just a safety issue. Yeah. Now that's the new normal. I mean, we've got entire floors of office buildings in downtown Providence where uh, some of our leading health insurers are, and the whole building's empty for the most part. Yeah, I think commercial real estate is going to be an interesting investment opportunity in the next few years. I was on a site visit at a community college out in the Western United States when we got to see some of their updated nursing clinical work, a lot of which is becoming remote friendly. Yeah. This idea of clinical work becoming remote, but in the teaching space, it, it was possible to really break up because they'd break down the competencies. They were able to say like, well, these are all sort of somewhat isolated units. And so if we figure out how to teach one remotely and then rearrange it a little bit in the time sequence, we can actually do two semesters remote before we need somebody in person. And then right. we create additional capacity in our nursing program by scheduling that better over the course of two years, right? And so they actually increased, I think, from, you know, 50 seats in the program to 75 by doing it without much, you know, labor change. I mean, they had to do some rearrangement. Sure. But without new faculty lines, which I thought there's some really cool stuff going on out in the world in that space. So I appreciate you, yeah, naming that this is our new normal and we're going to be needing to sort that out in some ways. So I want to go back to this idea of like individual resilience as a developed capacity. I've seen this idea of like institutional imperative for resilience. And I want to go back to that. Like there's a number, the University Innovation Alliance is a big organization that tries to help institutions learn from each other. So they're always talking about creating the conditions in which resilience can be possible, or it would dovetail with the idea that you mentioned of the pedagogy of kindness, sort of institutionalized. So how does, I mean, maybe if you want to talk about Providence College, but how does an institution make a decision like that? And I know that might be above both our pay grades to be discussing, but I think it's hard for an individual instructor to be a lot different when the institutional structures shape your behaviors in particular ways. So I'm curious, like how you negotiated that or how Providence talks about the conditions under which resilience can be possible. Well, that's a great question. PC has had some pretty innovative programming in this space. Georgetown has also done some really interesting work okay. here. Uh, we have a Riccobono academic resilience program here where we create opportunities for faculty to become fellows. And we all participate in some common readings and learn about 
the ways to develop or incorporate resilience into our courses. Uh, some folks are doing journaling, other folks are working in different paths. But the idea of, of having courses that are designated, essentially having a resilience component, I think is something that institutions could consider. And that was done with the generous support of one of our alums, and it provided faculty with a small stipend and a community of people to bounce ideas off of, which I thought was invaluable. Because I, as I started to dis, and we, we have a process where you can propose a class yeah. and some goals for your class and what you're hoping to accomplish. I think that's a pathway for institutions to follow. Also encouraging faculty to really prioritize mental health as a category on the syllabus. I've had a number of students who've come up to me who have said, you know, I'm not actually experiencing any challenges where I need to talk to you right now, but I just want to say I'm grateful for you including this. I feel seen. I feel, I feel this is something that more folks could really do to help their students understand that they see them beyond just the three hours a week in the classroom. I think that's an institutional change. I think the other thing we can do is, I know you've had some background in student affairs, but I think faculty and other offices on campus need to work more closely together in the new world we find ourselves in. So oftentimes, student affairs is in one silo, and then the academic affairs is in the other silo. But of course, the two of them really interrelate all the time. But we often will just refer a student to the dean's office or whatever. And increasingly, I think we need to be in partnership. Yeah, I appreciate what you were saying earlier. It felt like my old student affairs, day, student affairs days where we would encourage faculty to locate or maybe identify students and help refer them to the correct resource at times. Um, but even getting folks to be aware of those and taking time to include a note in the syllabus that this is possible uh, was a, a bit far afield in some cases. So one more question in that layer of institutional work. How do people in your department or college or unit talk about it? Like, what are the kinds of conversations that come up at faculty meetings? In our department, we're very aware of the challenges and the circumstances that our students are bringing into our classrooms. I'm really fortunate to be part of a department that's very student-centric in that way and is really very much aware of trying to help students succeed. And I think one of the things that is hard here, a lot of our students have a lot of strengths, but they don't recognize those always. That's one of the things we can do as faculty is to help our students recognize the strengths that they do bring in. And I think that's a real challenge, particularly for students who've sometimes struggled academically. It's an issue when you're trying to wrap your head around, okay, do I kind of continue down this path? Do I change my major? Some of these, you know, kind of big life decisions as a college student, you really need to recognize that you're building on some important strengths. And I think a focus on resilience helps you identify some of those strengths and hopefully gives students some additional confidence. I think for me, these skills can be taught and we talk about them. You know, students will talk about their experiences. We just had a lively conversation about imposter syndrome last week in my seminar. And you know, a lot of students, you know, we were talking about it and then how many folks are feeling this way and three quarters of the hands in the room went up. And so that's a very important issue for us to deal with because I think as faculty, we need to recognize where our students are coming from and you need to begin with where they are. Excellent. Bob, what did I miss about your article? Is there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about from your current research? One of the things I will say, Bill, is the, the course I teach, really, we really try to focus fully on kind of not just resilience, but professional development. We work with students to talk about the new world of work, the changing world of work. So what's it like to be part of an online team? Uh, how do you coordinate on projects when you're working online or in a hybrid setting? 
and try to give them a sense of what the workplace is going to look like when they graduate. And I think for me, this is really crucial because it's changed so dramatically because I think most of our students are going to be either hired or onboarded or in some way, shape or form working remotely as a key kind of competency. And so I use Microsoft Teams, for example, throughout the class, even when we're in person, we're using Teams in many of my classes because I want them to develop the skill set of not just how do I join a Teams meeting, but how do I curate my online presence in a team? Yeah. And how do I curate my online presence with things like LinkedIn? And how do we interview virtually? One of the things our program does is we do mock interviews with all of our graduating seniors. And we identify either practicing professionals or alums who will spend a half hour um, doing an interview. They identify a position that they're going to interview the student for in their organization. So they're actually, it's not just a generic interview. They're actually interviewing for a spot, whether they want it or not, is another question. But they interview and then they get about 15 to 20 minutes of a debriefing to really talk about how that process went and what their strengths are, where they can improve. This is where, from a resilience perspective, giving students the opportunity to try to some cases succeed, other cases not, but then to build on that and to understand how to build on that. That's, for me, a big part of the institutionalization of resilience. Thanks for getting into that. And yeah, the notion of teaching professional skills as a vehicle towards resilience. Yeah, I just don't think we're making that connection yet. Widespread. So good to hear it as a model. Bob, this is the Mindset in Motion podcast. How is your mindset changing about the idea of resilience in education? I think my mindset has changed in that I realized that we really need to spend much more time on this. And particularly when it comes to things like professionalization, as we just mentioned, I think many faculty, and myself included in this category, had to really thought about how different students' experiences were. Some students are thoroughly networked and confident and ready to take the world by storm. And other students are equally capable, but they haven't fully developed their own internal resilience. And then a single setback can be one that throws them off their course. I think by focusing on resilience, we can help keep students on that path to success. Great to hear it. Where can we find you, you know, on the internet, Dr. Hack, if we want to get in touch with you, where's a good place to Certainly, I have a personal website, which I'll be happy to share with you, Bill. I'm not a Twitter guy at this particular juncture. I left Twitter a while back, <laughs> but I would be more than happy to, uh, and, and certainly anyone is uh, welcome to email me at rhacky at providence.edu. Great. And we'll put your website in the, your personal website in the show notes. Thank you, Dr. Bob Hackey, for joining us on Mindset in Motion. You can connect with Dr. Hackey at his email, as he mentioned, and you can access the newest LTHE issue at journals.calstate.edu forward slash E-L-T-H-E. And as always, you can find links to our resources at orbiscommunications.com. Thanks for joining today, Dr. Hackey. Thank you for having me, Bill. It's been a pleasure. If you have questions for me or just want to talk about your institution, connect with me at bheinrich at orbiscommunications.com or check out our website at orbiscommunications.com. <laughs>